You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest. Bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Jeremy Gardner. He is founder and managing partner at Mystic Ventures. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics, investments, really what's going on in terms of development of the industry. Should be a really interesting conversation. Obviously, we're still kind of, in some respects, still very early stage. In the other respects, we've got some really interesting kind of developments and movements in terms of some of these things actually kind of coming to market or at least getting closer and sort of see what Jeremy's view is and what he's seeing going on in the space and what sort of insights he has. So with all that, Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we get into psychedelics and the stuff you're doing with Mystic, let's get a little bit of background because you, you've been involved in several different industries and I'm kind of curious on how psychedelics has been part of that or the kind of culmination of that and uh, hear a little of the backstory. So tell us, how did you get into this? How do you get investing? What's been your background? Sure. So I uh, started my career in the world of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, founded when I was in college what is now the largest and oldest nonprofit in crypto, the Blockchain Education Network. Uh Um, Shortly thereafter, it I met a brilliant 18-year-old computer scientist. We dropped out of school together, started the first DeFi app, the first application on the Ethereum blockchain, um, mm-hmm. and had a lot of success there before I was recruited to a venture capital firm in San Francisco, Blockchain Capital. Okay. And I was hired as an entrepreneur resident, and I ended up bringing them so many deals that they ended up effectively making me a partner on the fund. And I learned the ins and outs of VC, and by late 2017, Having already been in crypto for quite some time, I had enough money to launch my own venture fund focused on the intersection of blockchain technology and social impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that went well, but I was pretty burnt out on crypto and I decided <laughs> to try something new, starting a men's skincare brand, Made Man, which I'm still the CEO of. Fast forward now to call it summer 2020, and my friends had started MindMed which was one of the first big kind of psychedelic companies. And they showed me that like psychedelics had a future, not just in kind of the like subculture, but also potentially in the mainstream, in the public markets, in, you know, in a legal market. And that to me was profound because before whatever modicum of success I've I've achieved in my life, I attribute (laughs) all the success I've had due to, to psychedelics. Uh, I first took mushrooms when I was 14 years old. They took me from being suicidal, angry, and depressed to never having suicidal ideation again and getting off the five psychiatric drugs I was on by the time I was 15. So, So it seemed very fitting for me to direct my energy as an investor towards something I am so passionate about. Really the precipice, as you mentioned, the early days of, of this nascent industry, which when I started this fund reminded me of 
crypto in like 2015. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious about your personal psychedelic experience. I mean, what so what did mushrooms actually do for you? I mean, you talked about kind of getting off the medications, not having the suicidal ideations, but like, like how did that work for you? What was that experience like? So I I haven't fully fleshed this out because there's no real academic research to, to corroborate yeah. what I experienced. But I believe that, well, but there's a lot of historical or indigenous use cases where psychedelics were rite of passage for young uh-huh. men and women. And I believe that capacities just can have this, psychedelics can have this profound capacity to precipitate enlightenment in young people. Yeah. Uh, the first maybe seven, eight times I sat with the psychedelic mushrooms, it was like I was having like a life-altering epiphany every 10 minutes. My entire outlook on the <laughs> yeah. world just changed. I just, that feeling of oneness that people communicate, but also just it put my, you, you know, I had read a lot of Buddhism at this age, and it put like, you know, this notion that life is suffering, but it put my own suffering, my own pain, my own anger into context in a broader kind of global scope. And in that light, you know, I remember quite explicitly in that being like, how can I be so depressed? How can I be suicidal when there are kids starving in Africa? They're like, but you you have no idea how p- profound yeah. that was. Like, yeah. here I am, 14, like having considered suicide just days earlier. Yeah. And I just had this moment of realization that my, my suffering is insignificant, that the pain that I faced you know, and I had a lot of adversity. I'd been kicked out of schools. I had been mm-hmm. arrested. I didn't have it. My life was not easy, but relatively speaking, it was. I, I, yeah. I was. It made you had a place me, to sleep. Things that you. Yeah, it made me yeah. so profoundly aware of the privilege that I have in my life, and instilled in me a sense of gratitude I had never experienced before. And I just never went back. And. Yeah. I never abused psychedelics. Like I, I'd, I've taken the for like a music festival or sure. for for a concert. But for the most part, psychedelics are a very spiritual thing, and and I, I've always had that appreciation for them. But it, they've guided me throughout my life. That's the core point: is that a- yeah. after that very first experience, I immediately understood the medical and spiritual applications of these substances. And, and I've allowed them to help me become a better man and a better decision maker when making consequential life decisions. They've really guided me, like I said, throughout all my business endeavors and success. Yeah. And has it been an ongoing practice? I mean, is this something you... Yeah. you yeah. Yesterday was my 31st birthday, or uh-huh. day, excuse me. Yeah. And, Congratulations. And every birthday I go into the forest or the jungle or to a mountain. This year I stayed on a farm uh, uh-huh. in, in the hills of Puerto Rico. And I, uh, yeah, I just ate mushrooms, hung out with my dog, explored a river and some waterfalls. And uh, it's an accountability practice. Uh, uh, once you like cut off all the phones and yeah. external stimuli and really go inwards, uh, you really, you will always discover some profound truths about yourself and about your own reality. And I, I, I think I read years ago that, you know, psychedelics are wasted on the young and I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the most important people to be taking psychedelics are the people making critical yeah. decisions at large organizations or in governments. Those are the people we want getting this outside perspective, you know, mm-hmm. experiencing ego death. And so, 
yeah, it, it's definitely a part of my life practice. There's no, besides my birthday, there's no real regularity to it. Although I try to sit with ayahuasca at least once a year. Yeah. So when's the first time that you felt like you were going to be investing in this, that you, you saw this as, you know, more than just a personal practice, but something you actually wanted to foster from an economic point of view? Probably around the, because I, I had, a, I was very liquid at the time they started MindMed. Yeah. And their first use case was ADHD for, or LSD for adult ADHD. And of uh -huh. all the things in my life that psychedelics have made better, ADHD is not one of them. And I have severe <laughs> ADHD. So I, you know, between my illiquidity and, and, and their initial use case, I just, I, I didn't wasn't, invest. It wasn't a match. But they had a, you know, they only did one financing before the IPOs, like six, like six months before or something. And it was a monster. And then it just kept going up. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a profit-seeking guy or a real wealth-seeking guy. Money's always come fairly naturally to me. But when they showed me the, the, the public sentiment and reception, and then, and, and, then, and then all these started trials started popping up in the past few years, I mean, it was a very quick decision. I mean, I went from deciding to launch a venture fund to having one structure money raised and deploying capital in three weeks. That's all thanks to Angelus. But uh, wow. I, I had been marinating on it for probably six months, like like since the like spring of 2020. But but I started decided to start in like I want to say September, and yeah, by October one I had it launched. And who? So when when you decided to put together the fund, like what was your thinking in terms of who am I going to raise money from? Like who who are the people that are actually going to want to invest in these things? And what were the areas of investment that you were? originally kind of pitching or focusing on? Well, so it's funny you should ask. You know, I have what I call investor market fit. Like even before this psychedelic renaissance, like my whole career and even when I was in college and high school, I've been an advocate for psychedelics. So pretty <laughs> much anyone who knows me knows that I'm a big believer in psychedelic medicine. And I wasn't sure. I, I hate fundraising. So I like I was the anchor <laughs> investor <laughs> in my last venture fund. But yep. that, a lot of my liquidity was still in that fund, especially since I had bought out all my LPs in that fund. Got so I, I didn't have the liquidity to anchor this fund, but the Angelus rolling fund model is incredible because one, there's very low minimums. Two, it's all automated. They're pretty much your entire back office. And and so, you know, my, uh, my LPs were, for the most part, people that had just been following me on Twitter and Instagram for years. Yeah. I, I have more LPs than I've taken LP meetings. So because <laughs> because I'm just because of Yeah, it just automates the process. Well, and because of the way that the rolling fund is structured, I'm legally allowed to market my fund online. So I yeah. just I just post about it on Twitter and on Instagram. And fortunately, I did this before the, the real kind of global macro bear market. So uh yeah. the, the people were feeling uh flush and yeah. like I just raised all the money so quickly. I I, yeah. I hit my phone. How much did you raise? What was your total fund? I wanted to deploy a million dollars a quarter because it was just me initially. Yeah. Now that my team has grown, I'm 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 gonna start fundraising again. But uh a million dollars a quarter, given that I still was kind of committed to my pre-existing crypto portfolio and then was running yeah. a startup full-time. But right now we're deploying about a million dollars a quarter because it's based off of just quarterly commitments. Got and it. I'm hoping to get that up to two or three million dollars a quarter within the next six months. That's great. 
And I have to ask, the men's skincare line, is this tied in in some way, or is that just a pure kind of bolt-on for you? Everything I do is related. Like the, the, okay. so, so you actually asked what I pitched investors on. It's the same thing. So I, so the, my pitch on the fund, and, and I kind of had the flexibility due to that kind of investor market fit I was talking about, but I, I said the fund's thesis is focused on the elevation of consciousness. And frankly, that's really what Main Man was all about. Main Man was about getting guys to start to invest in self-care, yeah. take care of their skin, take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And obviously, psychedelics are profound and far more mind-altering way to conduct, but still participate in self-care. And the hope eventually is, is that if you give people the tools to feel better about themselves, it leads to them being better people. And, yeah. you know, the world needs better people. So, yes, yeah. it's all intrinsically tied. Uh, yeah. Even the crypto stuff, it was this belief that, you know, you can't have a fair society when you have such an unjust bank banking or financial yeah. system. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So in terms of the investments, where where did, I guess, what have you invested in? Why these areas? What's been your kind of thesis? How has it actually played out? The thesis is exactly what I told you, the elevation yeah. of consciousness. We've in mm -hmm. invested it in consumer breathwork apps, VR apps, a holotropic sound-based biofeedback, sound therapy, uh, B2B SaaS businesses, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, both brick-and-mortar and telemedicine, drug discovery and drug development, CPG brands, literally everything under the sun. And obviously, now that we've kind of developed that baseline, all these kind of companies that interplay with one another will mm -hmm. now probably start to focus more on drug discovery and development simply because I think that's where there's so much potential in the long term. But yeah. I am always happy to throw like a 50K check at like a retreat space or an accelerator just to kind of buoy this entire ecosystem as a whole. Yeah. Because they, they're all interrelated with one another and, and they're all necessary to kind of craft this industry and the image that I think the OGs of the psychedelic space would want, that I want, the one mm -hmm. that's, you know, very radically inclusive, that doesn't resemble big pharma. And as, you know, I kind of learned through my own personal trauma, you know, going to crypto to create an alternative to Wall Street, but worrying that it could become Wall Street 2.0 and seeing that happen in some ways, you know, there's a real risk that, you know, psychedelics just become pharma 2.0 and that's the worst possible outcome. And so making investments that are not just, you know, profit seeking drug development, biotech yeah. firms, but like kind of cultural plays, ones that invest in reciprocity with the ind indigenous cultures that they're taking mm -hmm. their medicine from. And once that, you know, investing community access and low income access, like all this is really important to turn this movement or even industry in, into something that in effect changes the world for the better. Yeah. Any particular criteria when you're looking at a potential investment? So I've been an early stage pre-seed investor for what? Seven years now. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, pretty much most of my adult life. And, you know, I've got a good track record having been the first investor in a couple billion dollar, the several hundred million dollar companies. Mm -hmm. and, and what it ultimately comes down to when you're the first institutional money in or first money in for that matter, and what it comes down to is the founders. Nothing else matters. You can have a great idea, 
by the time you get to your Series A, yes, let yes, alone yes. an exit or IPO, it's going to be a totally different concept. Yeah. yeah so everything's going to change. So, it, but my 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 criteria has had to shift in this space in particular due to the just mind-bogglingly high quality of the teams here. Back in the day, I would throw like checks at like 17, 16 year old kids, you know, that have like haven't completed high school or aren't even going to complete high school. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, there are a lot more PhDs or MDs. Yeah. I mean, I've, I think I've got between, between all my portfolio companies, like I've got like half, like the top 10 medical uh, deans of the top 10 medical schools uh-huh. on one of my company's advisory boards. I mean, yeah. it's just it, it, the buy-in right now at the academic and, uh, and medical levels are is, is so high that it would be foolish for me to be investing in companies that don't have that level of institutional support because yeah. biotech, healthcare, medicine, they're very pedigreed industries. And if you can't get the buy-in from those upper echelons of society, it's going to be very hard to be successful. Yeah, yeah. How do you kind of, I guess, organize or structure the space? I mean, we've got kind of, you know, plant medicines, animal medicines, lab medicines. Like, what what's your kind of way of organizing psychedelics? I think I think there's two ways, so it's, or three ways, and there's kind of a circle. I that you could do some sort of kind of organizational chart, but on the one hand. You have the plant medicines derived from plants, not mixed. They can obviously be extracted like peyote yeah. or mescaline, but you know, plant or I, I, you can't really call mushrooms plant medicine, but they, <laughs> they fall into that category because yeah. fungi are their own kingdom. And then, um, uh, so you have those and then you have synthetics now, okay. but then there's, but then there's a category that I guess would, I would call the OGs which there's overlap between each. So like MDMA and LSD are synthetic, but they are also like OG psychedelic medicine. Uh And you have to distinguish between those and then the new derivatives and, you know, new and improved versions of these molecules. And so obviously on both the plant and synthetic side, you have OGs. But I think distinguishing between plants and synthetics is the most important. And, you know, where most of the investment's going to be made moving forward is going to obviously be on the synthetic side. Yeah. I, there are... And, and why? Just just because of pr- production processes and things like that? Well, intellectual property. It's okay. much easier to justify scheduled trials with the FDA and drug approval processes if there's intellectual property around what you're doing. Now, obviously, yeah. like MAPS and MDMA is an exception. But, but that's an OG and it's not a plant. So yeah, so yep. yeah, it's still in this the synthetic category. I yeah. you know, it's just it's very hard to justify the cost of of, you know, trying to get approval for a use case for mushrooms and you can't really even patent them. So our best hope is that psilocybin just gets rescheduled so it can be prescribed because there are gonna be licensed manufacturers. One of our companies is a licensed psilocybin mushroom manufacturer um and but most of the psilocybin trials that are out there are all synthetics yeah and and are there particular kind of use cases or applications or conditions and things that you're most interested in and no it's it's so endless like (laughs) uh like i mean i mean there are so many applications from anti-inflammation 
like to, to dermatology, to pulmonary illnesses, to, you know, strokes, to neurodegenerative diseases. Like, obviously, I, at a personal level, am most interested in companies treating diseases and illnesses that have affected me. But uh-huh. but as an ambassador, I have to create a distinction, you know. Yeah. Uh, like, one of my favorite use cases um, is a boga for for uh for for opiate addiction it's a powerful powerful plant medicine from africa and it is in my view perhaps the best chance we have at creating a silver bullet for opiate addiction and yet there are no company like that was one of the first use cases some of these public company a couple of these public companies went for and i can't justify investing in that use case right now but a boga has like like anti-cancer properties and all these other properties. And so I would, you know, in theory, invest in a company working with a BOGA, but not necessarily for the use case that I'm most passionate about. Yeah, yeah. What, um, I guess, what are the companies that you've been most sort of excited by the last couple of years? So we have one portfolio uh, called Neuropharmica that are really stealthy, but they've got perhaps the most powerful AI drug discovery tool on the planet. And- I gave them a few leads, like indications to look into, and they got hits in their very first trials, already filing patents. Super excited. Can't wait for those to be announced. Artificial intelligence is go- is like the future of drug discovery. And so anyone that's not using it at this point, I'm fairly skeptical of because it's just so precise and able to crunch so many numbers and cross-reference so many studies in such a short period of time. Uh, that's great. I'm, you know, hugely excited about what MAPS is doing with MDMA. And that yeah. was our biggest check and also our most late stage deal. But I believe within the next year where, you know, the FDA is going to approve MDMA for PTSD and related symptoms. And it, it's going to force the DEA to reschedule the substance to likely schedule three and yeah. making MDMA available for PTSD, it's just going to be a game changer. Trauma is one of the most misunderstood conditions in our society because everyone has it. It's one of these problems with current medical treatment is that in order to get a drug approved, you have to have an indication. You have to be sick. But what if you have trauma? Maybe not PTSD, but you just want, you want to work through whatever happened to you in your life and feel better and Uh live a better, more productive life. I mean, that's what medicine was to humans for almost the entirety of our history. Only recently do you need to be sick to take medicine. Yeah, the whole uh, disease model. Yeah. But but me, but providing MDMA, I mean, it, it's just going to, I mean, this whole notion of intergenerational trauma, which is so real, you can in essence stop it at the core because if someone yeah. can actually address their trauma and come to terms with it, they're not going to pass that trauma down to their children. And yeah. moreover, what really excites me, going back to me talking about giving young people psychedelics part of um their phase three trial was that they were able to read uh, run trials with teenagers and what's so important about that is that teenagers a lot of trauma happens in your youth yeah, and, exactly. and, and in your childhood early adulthood if, if someone that you know is the, the victim of a horrific crime or horrible death or injury yeah. or something if we can give them mdma with obviously a licensed therapist 
in the weeks after it happens or even months after it happens, the likelihood that it doesn't, that it develops into PTSD is almost non-existent. We can like, we can prevent trauma from even forming if we we start to use these medicines that no pill, no amount of talk therapy is ever going to achieve. Like, yeah. like something like MDMA or these other substances, but let's focus on MDMA because that's what's about to be approved. If something like MDMA is available in the sh- window after a traumatic incident happens, we can literally nip trauma at the bud. So that's yeah. so exciting to me. Yeah. So a lot of these kind of models, you know, it's about obviously we need to create the the compounds and create the protocols. I see, you know, a big hurdle in terms of actually getting people trained and actually being able to put this into play in terms of getting into market or getting into people's hands that need it. Like, where are the big bottlenecks for you as you really see this industry kind of developing and actually helping the vast numbers of people that have these conditions? You you hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest bottlenecks is just like one like psychiatrists and doctors and clinicians like they often suck like they spend so long going through med school the yeah. last thing they want to do is learn more shit like yeah. <laughs> or, or relearn i mean a lot of this is unlearning the things that they learned before exactly and so so yes the onboarding is a monumental effort and you know creating the right incentives of unfortunately our entire healthcare industry is predicated on really fucked up incentives Yep. for for healthcare providers and so we have we have to rework the system i we just made a great stopgap um investment we're the lead investor or co-lead investor in Enthia, which is um psychedelic health insurance they just oh, uh fascinating i i can't say who they started yeah. with dr brawners yep. but they have uh they just signed a deal with one of the big four consulting and accounting firms and they also have lois from more than one fortune 10 company so that's huge um because insurance is a huge part of this so i I actually say that's one of the other big bottlenecks of insurance but i think for like you know you know wealthy white collar companies you know information economy companies it's such yep. a no-brainer investment to offer psychedelic health insurance. It's just like, you know, one treatment at a ketamine clinic, which is one of my, I find the least interesting, yeah. can, can, <laughs> can improve someone's productivity 10x. And those studies will come out soon enough. Yeah. Like yeah. when, like, it's just, it's just so profound. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, well, there, there, there are two really existential ones. Obviously, rescheduling. I mean, yeah. Almost all these substances besides ketamine are schedule one, no medical value, treated the same as heroin. So that that obviously needs to change. And then, but policymakers, regulators, I mean, compared to crypto, I mean, the amount of excitement and unambiguous excitement around this is incredible. But then secondly, it's the whole way the FDA approves drugs. Like I, like I saw a bunch of people celebrating today and I was just mortified. Uh, you know, a breast cancer vaccine successfully completed its phase one trial. Guess how long that took? I don't want to guess. Six years. 20. And I'm like, great, we're going to have a breast cancer vaccine by 2090. Yeah. Like, like. Like my grandchildren's grandchildren will benefit. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll have to deal with cancer. So the way that we approve drugs needs to change. Like, 
things like you know like things like mdma that have a ton of like historical use or even lsd uh or mushrooms like these things we actually do have the research around them we yeah. know that there's like like you can't overdose like like yeah. there these are 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 in terms of societal and individual harm they're incredibly low there's no addiction potential except of course the only legal one the heroin of psychedelics which is ketamine but uh there's there otherwise there's really no addiction potential of these substances and so we need to rethink in the wake of an addiction epidemic especially with opiates a mental health crisis that seemed burgeoning rates of anxiety depression and suicide this needs to be like a national federal level priority to make these medicines that work that we know work more readily more immediately available and we we cannot make you know we can't say oh this is going to need to go through medical trials for eight years for one indication like and that's a drug scheduling issue but it but as my point with breast cancer illustrates it's just a drug issue it's it's a drug approval issue we just have to change the way we approve drugs. I know some of Trump's biggest backers expended a massive amount of political capital with Trump to try to get a guy who's actually I'm no fan of Trump. <laughs> full disclaimer, but they but they they I loved that they tried to spend all this capital on getting Jim O'Neill, who works at Mithril uh, Capital. Uh, mm-hmm. one of Peter Thiel's uh, hedge funds or venture funds or mm-hmm. private equity. But he, but he's like, he's an MD. He's so smart. And that th- this was his take. We need to allow, you know, like freedom to, uh, like freedom to choose. Like if someone's like super sick, they should be able to choose to take a medicine, even mm-hmm. if it's not approved yet. Like that, yeah. th- like that's a, th- that's a very, like if someone has breast cancer and they want to take an experimental drug, let them. Like, especially if it's late stage, like we don't have the the treatment for these things. So, so, and so like, it's something that will eventually happen, but, but, you know, when it comes to government and, and, and changing laws and regulations, you know, it's tough. The, the best pathway I'm seeing for this is what's happening. I mean, look, I think there will be federal rescheduling very soon, especially for these substances that are in phase two, phase three trials. But it's also happening at the local and and state level. But we can't take the path that a cannabis did. That's such a broken business. And it just doesn't work well. We we need to get all these medicines out of, you know, schedule one regulation. You know, saying it has no medical application doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Best way? Probably. I mean, you can just look up Mystic Ventures. Uh, Our page will be right there. And then if (laughs) you look up my name on Jeremy Gardner on Instagram or Twitter, I'm there as well. And uh, we actually, you know, I know this won't come out for a few weeks, but I just released a 20-page annual report for my limited partners in Mystic, kind of talking about the state of the industry macro trends, company highlights. It's pinned on my Twitter right now. I don't know if it will be when it's released, <laughs> uh, when this is released, but it, it, it probably will be because I can't imagine me tweeting anything more important than that for the yeah. next month or two. 
Yeah. Uh, but but you know, there's uh, lots of in uh, in like information about what we do on our website. Awesome. I'll make sure the links are there, and and we'll we'll put a link to the uh, to the white paper as well, and to the report. Jeremy, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. <laughs>